welcome to the Green Majority. This is the Green Majority, and it's a show called the Green Majority on CIUT eighty nine point five FM with uh, Stefan Christian Urban Hostetter. How you doing, Lauren Elizabeth Corlator, uh, David Franklin Irwin Hostetter, and uh, eventually later on in the show, Stefan will be interviewing Julia Levin about the just recovery that is imminent and about to um, spark utopia in the Dominion of Canada. That is definitely how the, the conversation goes, yeah. Mm. Full confidence that the Liberal government is going to lead to utopia sparking, uh, mm. for sure. Sunny ways. But first we're going to talk about plastic, fire, storms, melting ice, Mexican farmers, um, activist who's been released now, finally, from federal prison, and that's it. All right. So a new investigation from NPR and PBS has dug into internal plastics industry documents and interviewed former industry officials to reveal how the plastics industry has carefully manipulated the public perception of recycling in order to continue making and selling ever more plastic. Laura Sullivan reports that the plastics industry knew in 1974 that it would be very difficult to ever make recycling plastic economically viable. But in the face of public backlash against the mountains of plastic being buried in landfills, the industry nevertheless launched a massive plastics recycling propaganda campaign to convince people that it worked and to fight legislation in the early 90s that was trying to curb plastics manufacturing. There are so many different types of plastic that can't be melted together. Any given plastic can only be recycled a couple of times, and it's so cheap to make new plastic that the whole process is too expensive for commercial viability. The industry also decided, absurdly in the early 90s, to put those little recycling symbols on all plastic products, even though it didn't mean that they could be recycled. Some local recycling programs actually fell apart as a result of the little symbols, since it caused people to start putting all manner of plastic in the recycling. Now, in the face of more backlash against plastics as they break into tiny pieces and invade the cells of tiny organisms and fill the oceans around the globe, the plastics industry is trying another ad campaign to promote plastics, and they say that they really mean it this time, because markets and technology have changed, even though the great majority of used plastic in the U.S. is still stranded without a buyer since China stopped taking it a couple years ago, and the ads being put out now do not show in any way how industry is fixing the problem. At the same time, it's come to light that we don't actually know where 99% of plastic pollution has gone, and a new report estimates that a lot of it is in little pieces floating in the top 200 meters of the world's oceans. Yeah. I feel like recycling is a particular topic that comes up and comes back and forth in vogue i'll say like i almost feel like how you feel about recycling is an indication as to where you are in your sustainability journey you know you're in stage one you're in denial you think recycling's for hippies and and you're just against it because it's too much work and you're just done with it stage two you mildly support it you know you sort of see it as you know you've, you've seen the news you understand that it's an important individual step to limit your footprint you know you're, you're, you're willing to at least you know do your best then there's like stage three when you're like consider yourself an environmentalist and recycling becomes a sort of a requirement for everyone in an integral part of a sustainable future and then you get to the sort of stage four this resignation 
where recycling is yet another example of individualistic solutions being pushed as the end-all be-all to hide systemic issues and allow the fossil fuel industry to make more money. Uh, That's where I'm at right now. And honestly, this this piece, which I very much recommend, it's actually... uh, it's both an article and a podcast on their Planet Money podcast. I recommend it because it is, it is damning. Um, you know, I'm not saying people shouldn't recycle, but in this in this report, they show that I believe it's less than 10 percent of all plastic has been recycled that was that was made in the U.S. And that's that's not good. I would be really curious to see if your like ladder of engagement like regarding recycling and environmentalism like applies across generations because I feel like that definitely applies for people who were young kids in the 80s and 90s because that like effective ad campaigning so permeated like pop culture and education like it was like hammered into us from a young age like reduce reuse recycle there was like magic school bus episodes about it I'm sure I can't actually recall but I'm fairly certain there were like it was like such a big thing in the 80s and 90s that like personal responsibility don't be a litter bag um so I'd I'd be curious to see what it's like with younger generations because I feel like there's been so much focus on plastics probably like the last five or six years. Um, And that's great because it's a very big problem. But I feel like we know this and we've talked about this on the show before. So much of the focus on plastics and recycling tangentially is is so misguided because I think a lot of our focus, um, especially amongst sort of like the millennial potentially Gen X generation is entirely around sort of like individual choices and like the zero waste movement. And, and again, not that those are bad things. Personal awareness is important and it's, and it's really good to sort of onboard people into sort of caring about plastics and waste and pollution because like, again, it's a very, very big problem and continues to be. But um, like as somebody who did at one point, like try to shove all my trash into a jar, I kind of think the only thing the zero waste movement has done other than raise awareness about issues is like, has been super great for the paper straw industry and the like fancy metal bento box industry. And other than that, I don't actually know how much of an effect it's had on either the success rate of recycling going up or a reduce in plastic use overall if that makes sense because like we know like this is a problem especially when you're looking at at an instance like the states or to a degree canada um when when we lost the ability to export our plastic for recycling to china it it, like it ground to a halt we we just have plastic piling up and piling up and piling up in landfills and warehouses all over the place so like clearly this is an issue we know it's an issue of regulation we know it's an issue of legislation and policy and we know it's an issue of making sure that at some point down the road, we have some sort of uh, maybe not actually a circular economy because I feel like I, I oftentimes don't actually get the definition of a circular economy correct. But like the idea that product development does have to be cradle to cradle. It has mm-hmm. to be the idea that if I am a company and I produce a something looking around my room frantically for something. <laughs> so a skincare product and that skincare product comes in a plastic bottle. I then have to be responsible for taking that plastic bottle back from the consumer and dealing with that waste myself or reusing it or something like that. Um, and I feel like we, we ultimately know that that's, that's kind of going to be the only solution going forward. And be, be like, because 
I don't know. I feel like for a while we were looking really hopefully to initiatives like the Ocean Cleanup Project, which was like supposed to be that big floating kind of net. And we would like deploy 25 of them across the world. And within 15 years, they would have the oceans completely cleaned up. And, and I think we're sort of realizing that it might not be as simple as that because it turns out you can't just like stick a giant net in the ocean and scoop out all the plastic and be done with it. Yeah. If, if you try, then you'll anger the orcas who are already coming after boats. Uh, yeah. yeah, the orcas are, yeah, the or- we have offended the orcas and we should be concerned. We're not, it's not a topic for today, but it is a topic we should cover. Um, but, but I think where you're going with that, I think is, is, has been, I think the places that have effectively seen some reduction in plastic waste, you know, Europe has done a pretty good job in beginning to put in place some of these types of regulations. And it's, it, it, I, I'm, I'm beginning to think that our sort of North American blue bin recycling system may end up being the most emblematic of our current time of our response to the environmental crisis, right? Because instead of regulating the businesses that are creating it, we've set up these vast systems to collect these goods and to handle the expansion of expectations caused by the plastic industry. You know, Dave mentioned that th- that the every single plastic was stamped with a, with a recycling symbol and a number. And some of those numbers basically meant unrecyclable they were recyclable and then like a six or like i don't know the numbers exactly but one or two of those numbers basically means you cannot recycle this but they still put it around a recycling sign making you think you can do it i literally only learned like two years ago that you can't recycle black plastic ever And and like i'm i'm 27 and i have a degree in environmental studies and like i said i used to like shove wrappers in mason jars obsessively and i only just learned that you can't recycle black plastic because again it has the symbol on it so you yeah. assume that it's recyclable at least somewhere yeah and and, and we assume that it, and it's you assume there's a market there somewhere and, and like and what's fascinating is that this whole operation is a massive expansion caused by the plastic industry at the expense of the taxpayer. So we're now paying for it instead of instead of the industries paying for it. And then and still most of it ends up in the landfill. As I mentioned earlier, 90% approximately of plastic created in the United States may, it did not end up getting recycled. Some of it was burned, so it not all end up in the landfill, but you know, burning isn't great either. You know, and then and then yeah, then you get to conversation of what banning plastic looks like and you end up in these weird debates about about paper straws rather than about what actually requiring companies that are using these types of things would look like to actually allow themselves to take it back. You know, and, and, and the regulations that happen in place to require take backs have worked. It changes how the company makes things and they will and they do make them in a way that is more easily reusable. Yeah. The focus needs to shift from the individual consumer to the to the organization or the company producing the product in the first place. And that ties back to legislation. Yeah. And, and before we get any hate mail, still recycle everything you can. Just understand that plastic is is super problematic. Because like aluminum, like 99% recycled. Aluminum, much, much cheaper if you get it recycled. So, you know, recycling still important. Don't hate us. Let's move on. So California wildfires have been steadily getting worse and worse over the past years, and Governor Gavin Newsom has recently been recorded in a burnt ashen wasteland decrying the present and future ravages of man-made climate change, as well as arguing about science with President Trump. The fires in California this year are already the worst they've ever been, and the typical fire season hasn't even begun. 
There are close to 90 massive and uncontrolled fires raging across the western U.S. through the states of California, Oregon, Washington, Montana, Colorado, and Utah. And smoke from the fires has come up into Canada and has even reached all the way to northern Europe. CNN quotes scientists from a European weather center as saying that fire activity in the U.S. in 2020 has been tens to hundreds of times more intense than the average from 2003 to 2019. Wildfire conditions have been worsening in California since European settlers arrived and subsequently outlawed the controlled burning that indigenous peoples had been doing for thousands of years, allowing lightning-sparked blazes to burn up the drier stuff so that there would be less fuel for larger fires. While fire has therefore always been present in California, white settler policy has allowed fuel to build up over decades and create bigger and bigger fires as the burning of fossil fuels has also created hotter and drier conditions and will continue to do so. Even though the fires are going to get worse no matter what, curbing CO2 emissions in line with the Paris Agreement will still greatly reduce their severity through the 21st century. California is also probably going to have to bring back controlled blazes, uh, blazes as practiced by the indigenous populations they tried to exterminate in order to reduce the amount of the fuel the amount of fuel the fires have to burn. At least half a million people have been evacuated across Oregon with fire conditions unlike anything local residents have ever seen. The police in Molalla thought that with so much evacuation, there could be risk of looters. But the suggestion led to people randomly calling in about Antifa and to brainwashed right-wing militia wielding weapons on the street against imagined Antifa raids, forcing the police to tell people to stay calm, use common sense, and stop calling them about the figments of their propaganda-addled minds. Many, Oregon uh, many Oregonian evacuees are going to Portland, which had the world's most polluted air as of September 16th, but the smoke will probably have begun to clear away by the airing of this program. Whole towns have been, have been consumed, dozens of people have died, thousands of emaciated migrating birds are falling out of the skies that have turned purple and orange, but Donald Trump, of course, still does not believe in climate change and has instead hired a climate denier who believes that our CO2 emissions are actually good for the planet to help lead NOAA, the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. California has faced a shortage of firefighters this year, since thousands of prisoners who otherwise would have fought the fires for almost no money were released due to COVID-19. But Governor Gavin Newsom has now finally decided to allow former inmates who fought fires while in jail to have their records cleared, which means that inmate firefighters will now eventually be able to become actual paid firefighters. On the other hand, immigrant farm workers on vineyards in California are being sent back to pick grapes in wildfire evacuation zones. These fires are unbelievable. I, you know, I, I, believe, the, I believe the six of the ten biggest fires that have happened in California have happened since July now. And that's like six of the biggest ever have happened since July. Yeah, they, like, these are massive, massive fires. And, and Newsom has gained some notoriety in the past few weeks, uh, especially last week or so, sort of bringing forth climate change as, as, as a major impact for these fires. And 
you know, at least throwing a, a bit of a bone to the criticisms of their overwhelming use of prison labor as, um, you know, as as a firefighting technique. But it's it, and it's also important uh, that we've seen many on the right echoing what we've heard from conservative government in Australia after their nightmarish fires, which were still this year, as a reminder, um, about about other people setting the fires and about them not existing, uh, about them not being connected to climate change. And sort of that push definitely still is coming from the right. But if Newsom really wants, I think, to be seen as taking climate justice seriously, I've got a couple of recommendations. Uh, the first one is ban the 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 three strike rule which you're using to keep nonviolent prisoners in prison so you can use them as as prison labor that is the first in thing you have to do if you're taking climate justice seriously you cannot be using prison labor paying them five dollars an hour or five dollars a day to risk their lives uh the second is stop approving fracking uh as recently as july newsom approved hundreds more permits for fracking which makes climate change worse <laughs> i yeah, if you're 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 your entire state is on fire stop making it worse and lastly use california is so huge it has such a large amount of purchasing power that it that if they wanted to newsom could do some serious good by just changing the regulations that they require you know canada basically follows california's emission standards for cars because because basically no one wants to miss out on California's emission standards or California's market, so most cars will be made for their emission standards anyways, and so Canada usually just keeps following along with whatever they want. And so if he wants to make if he wants to think people think care, just ban SUVs. You will do more for climate if California bans SUVs than 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 almost anything else that like California alone could do. So Newsom. You have some work to do. Over to you, Lauren. Before I jump into my suggestion for the government of California, I would like to say the government or the government, the Guardian had a really good piece in um, like their weekly magazine last week about SUVs and their like overwhelming, not not proliferation, um, just how popular they are, how popular SUVs have become and how common they are everywhere and how they've totally taken over not only North American markets, but, but globally. So if you want to read more about SUVs and like the plague that they are, check out The Guardian from last week. Anyway, not, not the point I was going to make. The point I was going to make is um, there was a really awesome story, and I can't for the life of me remember if it was on CBC's Front Burner or on the New York Times Daily podcast talking about um, the difficulty that Californians are facing right now because a lot of them are finding it um, really, really difficult or impossible to get their properties insured now um, if they're in fire zones in places that have been on fire in recent years. Um, understandably, uh, you're starting to see insurance companies kind of like people have always predicted would happen, unwilling to insure properties that have been burnt in forest fires in recent years or are predicted to 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 burn or to continue to burn. Um, and I was listening to these, these experts talk about this on the podcast and how um, you can't get 
uh, like mainstream commercial insurers to insure these properties anymore. At one point, Gavin Newsom put like a one-year moratorium on that. Like you could not refuse to insure a property based on like fire issues within within the state of California. But that moratorium is is coming up on on an end. Um, so I, I so I think generally the idea is that a bunch of these homeowners are going to be left unable to insure their home, unable to live in their home, and then what are you going to do there? And um, after listening to this podcast for something like half an hour or 40 minutes, it blew my mind that nobody suggested what to me is so clearly the solution here. And that is that the government of California has to purchase these people's homes. Um, they obviously can't give them full market value, but we also know that going forward, they likely will no longer be able to get full market value. So yeah, maybe 10, 20, 25, 30 years ago, you built this house or you bought this house for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, and you will not be able to sell it for that much anymore simply by nature of the fact that you can't get it insured anymore as a homeowner. Um, and to me, the solution there, like I said, is is for the government to purchase them back. Again, not not for millions of dollars, but to make sure that these homeowners have somewhere to go and have something to live off of when they inevitably have to sell their house because they're not going to be able to sell to anybody else. And it sort of blew my mind that nobody had suggested that when I was listening to these experts talk because that, from what I understand, is what had to happen in areas of Holland where um, once they realized that the, the, the dikes and the levees were going to be overwhelmed, they had to basically like give land back to the rivers and back to the coasts in order to be able to continue to live there without. Um, uh, kind of succumbing to uh, sea level rise. That's essentially what they had to do. They had to purchase properties from people and say, we will purchase your home if you agree to move to a place that is on higher ground. And I kind of think the state of California and, and at some point other places across the world are going to have to do this too, because these people aren't going to be able to sell their homes. They're going to be left with nothing. So you're going to get people clinging to these properties in fire prone areas, in really, really dangerous areas. And ultimately it'll just cost the government more money in the long run in, in attempting to insure these homes in rebuilding these homes and in evacuating these, these communities. Yeah, the insurance industry and the way it's going to play out is perhaps to me one of the more terrifying you know issues. There's a we covered another story recently about how you know, I think it's their floodplains in Houston that are having trouble getting getting insured for floods, you know, and, and this is going to keep happening. Like what we're going to end up seeing, my biggest concern is we're going to end up seeing is that what's, we're not going to see what you suggested, which is a sort of a buyback program or something that sort of allows for this to happen. But instead, these houses will get dramatically reduced in value. Only people, the only they'll become places that only poor people can live in, and it will become an, a cycle where they'll never be able to build up actual any consistent wealth because they'll have to live in a place that constantly gets burned down. They'll be always rebuilding, and then those who can afford to move to more stable climates will be able to build their wealth, expand their sort of control, and those who are stuck in these sort of these areas where the where the only place they can afford are the uninsurable houses are going to constantly be seeing themselves in a cycle of losing their actual value, which will massively exacerbate income inequality. And yeah, it, it's uh, in the implications of the inability to insure one's house in these different climate affected zones cannot be understated and has to be solved in some way. All right. So Brazil is also currently on fire as its Pantanal wetlands, which are extremely biodiverse have been burning since July, leaving the corpses of charred animals in their wake. The fires in the wetlands are four times the size of the largest fire in the Amazon and have destroyed around 12% of the area that is the world's largest tropical wetland. 
The destruction of the Amazon, which is now losing virgin forest to the fires, is also making it warmer and drier in the wetlands. There was supposed to be an annual flood in the area, but it never happened this year because of a crazy drought. Al Jazeera reports that at least some scientists believe the warming Atlantic Ocean is moving moisture away from South America and sending it north. This moisture moving north could have something to do with the five hurricanes that have formed simultaneously in the Atlantic for only the second time in recorded history. One of these is Hurricane Sally, which recently arrived in Alabama, Florida, and Mississippi, with record flooding hitting at least Alabama. Hurricane Sally is following a trend of more recent storms of more of slowing down over the land and dropping more rain. A massive chunk of Greenland's ice sheet has broken off, and I can't remember if it was one of the precarious ones we mentioned last month, since the global climate is rapidly changing everywhere and it's difficult to keep track of all the aspects of the old climate that are in the midst of collapse or else teetering on the brink. Much like, much like the brittle white American psyche that we are all witnessing plunge into madness as the election draws near. The CBC quotes ice scientist Ruth Mottram as saying that the melt would have been thought extreme 30 years ago, but these days it's expected. The BBC reports that the atmosphere around Greenland has warmed by around 3 degrees Celsius since 1980. Farmers in the Mexican state of Chihuahua have taken over a dam in protest of the U.S. trying to force them to give up the water they need for their crops. The U.S. and Mexico have been exchanging water since 1944, with the U.S. being the net supplier of water in the agreement, but now the U.S. wants Mexico to pay up a five-year water debt in the midst of a drought that could ruin the cotton, pecan, and tomato farmers in Chihuahua if they're forced to give up their water. The Washington Post reports that Chihuahua has had to provide over half of Mexico's share while not receiving much, if any, in return, so that even though Mexico gets more water than it gives in the deal, uh, the state of Chihuahua has been losing water to the U.S., and now they're running out. One woman has been killed by police, and there is currently a standoff between police and farmers at La Boquilla Dam. There is also a dispute as to how much water is actually owed. And finally, Standing, Walk, Standing Rock water protector Red Fawn Fallis of the Oglala Sioux Tribe has been released from the U.S. federal prison after four years. Levy Rickert of Native News Online quotes Chase Iron Eyes as saying that Red Fawn was singled out by law enforcement at Standing Rock, and sadly she wound up bearing the brunt of police and state anger over our resistance. Of course, we know the real criminals are the oil companies and those in government and law enforcement who aid and abet their destruction of Mother Earth. Red Von Fallis was the most severely punished of all Standing Rock water protectors, and one of the charges stemmed from a gun she was said to have had and fired on site, although it turned out that the gun actually belonged to her lover, who was an FBI informant. Obviously a bunch there, but for that last story, I just want to highlight that, that that's four years, you know, four years in prison because the FBI brought a gun to Standing Rock. Yeah, there's actually a there's actually a TIFF movie that premiered this week that details the overwhelming surveillance that the FBI placed on Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights era. And also during this time, the FBI was actively working to discredit and destroy civil rights group groups, going as far as assassinating members of the Black Panthers, including most maybe most famously Fred Hampton. And in this documentary, James Comey, 
who was running the FBI during Standing Rock, calls this sort of period in the 1950s and 60s and 70s the darkest period of the FBI. A claim which is somewhat hard to believe as they, see, as they seem to continue their obsession with disrupting those who simply are simply demanding equality and punishing those who dare stand up to the American government. I think I would just encourage listeners, especially our listeners in so-called Canada, to keep in mind that this isn't strictly an issue that we see come up in the States. It's definitely not an issue that is limited to the FBI, um, although they're probably the the sort of the intelligence system that we are most familiar with just through social through like media and stuff like that. But we know that the RCMP have, have, have committed similar potentially not legally, but like crimes here as well. Um, I'm fairly certain that uh, when there were, when there was like the anti-fracking standoff at Elsa Pogtog in Kent County, New Brunswick, Jesus, years ago now, um, to to try to stop fracking um, exploration happening up there. There was a there was a big standoff between the indigenous community that lived there and the RCMP when they moved in to try to to try to enforce this injunction and um, things like uh, like RCMP cruisers were set on fire and we're all fairly certain that none of the none of the actual people from the Elsa Pogtog community were the ones who set those RCMP vehicles on fire. Um, big scary weapons were showing up and nobody knew where they came from stuff like that so it's like it's these this sort of um it's it's probably not entrapment in the legal sense i don't i don't necessarily know where the legal jargon like where those lines are drawn but i guess i just want to encourage people who are listening not to be too smug and sort of look down south and say oh well thank goodness that doesn't happen here because it absolutely does uh we see this kind of corruption this kind of violence happening with police forces all over the world and it's not just something that happens in the states singing if you swim in a sea of this is Stephen Hostetter, and I'm here for the interview with Julia Levin, uh, who's back from Environmental Defense and is the Climate and Energy Program Manager there. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. And so, this is the last time we talked a little bit about what the sort of very beginnings of a response uh, that the federal government had sort of put into place in regards to COVID. And, and now we're back to talk about a little bit more about you know, we at the time we sort it was very uncertain and not that we're really living in uh, an age of certainty currently, but we're definitely at least moved towards a beginning of a conversation of what a real recovery might look like, right? You know, we're expecting the throne speech on the twenty third, which is was expected to be the beginning of that conversation, and so we've seen uh, a wide range of of organizations beginning this sort of push uh, t- from civil society around what that could look like. Um, and, so, and so could you give a sense of what that looks like and what the ramp up for, uh, for this final push has been? Yeah, um, and you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Like last time we spoke, we were really in rescue mode and we were assessing um, some of those rescue programs. And now, and the government kept saying, we're not ready to talk about recovery. So really the speech from the throne is the first time we will hear what the government is thinking when it comes to building back from, from COVID-19. And so what we've seen over the last six months is a huge level of mobilization from across civil society when it comes to putting forth that vision for what, you know, what a transformative um, path forward is now, now that we're kind of out of the rescue phase. Um, and, that's, and that's just kind of grown in the last couple of months, especially in the last couple of weeks since, um, since the government 
prorogued parliament and announced that they will be putting forward a speech from the throne and a new, a new agenda. Um, so what we've seen like from environmental defense, and then I'll speak to some of the other initiatives more largely, but um, we're part of a One Earth, One Voice initiative that a bunch of environmental organizations are spearheading, calling for a green and just recovery. Um, and so through our combined efforts, we've seen more than 100,000 letters going to MPs and cabinet members, mostly um, Minister Freeland, who is now not just the deputy minister, but also minister of finance in an important cabinet shuffle that happened last month. We've seen thousands of people across the country calling their MPs, um, requesting, requesting and having meetings, just a really huge level of engagement. Last week, we organized a day of action um, on, on Twitter, a Twitter storm, in which 8,000 people called on Freeland and Trudeau for, for a green and just recovery. It's pretty remarkable, actually. Um, we've also seen, well, sorry, the climate groups have also, part of what we're trying to do is be really clear about what our expectations are, so that the government will know how we will then gauge failure or success when, when they put forward the speech. So we, we sent in a letter that um, just yesterday that 100 organizations signed that, that clearly lays out what climate ambition means in the speech from the throne. So what we're asking is really that um, signals that like the path to 2050, we've heard the government talk a lot about 2050 and that zero by 2050 and what that means. Our concern is all of that focus on 2050 ignores the fact that we need to maximize emission reduction today. So clear signals that the path to 2050 starts with today. Um, so things like that new 2030 emission target, this is something gov the government has been promising since they were elected basically a year ago, um, and we still haven't seen. And we want, because what the speech from the throne one of the things that can do is really set the legislative agenda. So what, what we'll see in parliament. So we were pushing for new climate accountability legislation. So something, a signal around that from the speech from the throne. Um, and just transition legislation, because we can't talk about climate, climate emission, climate targets without just transition. But from across civil society, we've also seen um, the Migrant Rights Network. They held a press conference this week with a letter which had been signed from by almost 300 groups calling for um, immigration rights for all migrant and undocumented people. We saw last week youth climate activists, they launched a not going back campaign with demands from, with everything from accessible housing, food security, implementing the UN Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, obviously lots, lots on climate, defunding the police. And they're planning a day of action for a couple of days after the speech from the throne and have made it clear that the nature of that action will either be celebratory if, if the government puts out a kind of vision that they can get behind or, or calling them out for a lack of action. Yeah. So, so and that's, that's obviously quite a, quite a response. Um, and I, I, very quickly, I, I sort of want to go back to one thing you mentioned about the importance of the 2050 uh, or, 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 or earlier compared to 2050, because I think that's one of those things that, you know, we had a couple of weeks ago, we had a show about the, the, the difficulties with net zero. And I feel like mm -hmm. that the, these climate targets of 2050 and or anything really that far out have a similar set of issues. Um, one, and one of them, which is that, you know, like any emission that's reduced, like given that these are yearly emissions, 
if you if you went if you emitted what we have now until 2049 and magically reduced it to zero in one year, you've still released way 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 more emissions than if you say halved it the next year and then slowly moved off it from there, right? Like so, there is this sort of like what you do in the five-year goalposts ends up being almost more important than your actual target. Exactly. Exactly. I mean. That's why what we're pushing for is five-year carbon budgets um, because, because what we need to do is figure out what room there's left in the atmosphere on how many, what space for new emissions there is. And, and we're quickly eating into our carbon budget, figure out what that means for Canada and then figure out what it means for different regions and sectors. And we need to measure that every five years because the destination is important, but it's the pathway that really matters. And we know the, like, the UN scientists told us that we have 10 years left to radically decrease our emissions, have our emissions. Um, so we, we need to get started on that trajectory to bring us down right away. Also, I mean, I, you guys spoke about this last week, but what, last time, but net zero is an amorphous term. It means nothing. It's actually not an absolute number. So yeah. maximal emission reduction today. And the longer we delay um, decreasing emissions, the harder it is, the more expensive it is. The, the greater the impacts are. Um, so we really, need, we really need to shift the focus away from 2050. I mean, it really, it's an important goal to have that, but we need to focus on the plan to get there and what that means in the next five years, the next 10 years. Yeah, for sure. And, and I would say that, so to move on to what we maybe expect from the, from the speech from the throne, it's interesting that there's been some articles coming out sort of implying that we're not going to get really much of a green response at all. There's been a couple articles coming out sort of saying that the liberals have decided this is like not the time or whatever. You know, there's another, there's an article about in the star recently saying like, is this, do Canadians really want a green response to this thing? And it's like, to me, it's a bit unreasonable uh, or unbelievable that they're having these conversations when the entire West Coast is on fire. You know, like, like I can't imagine the concept. Like, if 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 Ottawa was in Vancouver and they couldn't breathe right now, would you still be having this conversation? I guess is a little bit of my question. Um, but but yeah. So so what are you hearing, and and what what might we expect from this this whole operation? Yeah, so, I mean, to take us back to a month ago, mm-hmm. when, when, when that cabinet shuffle happened and um, there were press conferences from Prime Minister and, and Deputy Minister Freeland saying, we are putting forward in the speech from the throne a transformative vision for a green and equitable uh, recovery plan. I mean, that was great. And that was clearly in response to kind of the mobilization I mapped out earlier to huge unprecedented levels of mobilization. Um, and and it, it, it was encouraging to hear that. Like, appear, according to Global News, apparently they were looking at a $100 billion spending, green spending plan. Um, and and that, is, that is what we need. Um, unfortunately, like, as you just said, there's been a lot of reining that in in the last week uh, with comments from all kinds of people up in the throes of government. Um, and and that and that we won't that this that it would be somehow taking advantage of the moment in time to put forward a recovery people that works for a recovery plan that works for people. I, I like what you said about like would Heather Schofield ask if people cared about climate if Ottawa were on fire? I mean, I can't believe she asked regardless, but 
Yeah. Um, and it just, it's just so counterintuitive. It's not just civil society that's, and even for order, that would be enough, but it's not just civil society saying we need, we can't go back to how things were. We need to shift. And this is a moment in which we have to shift towards like social systems that work better for people and a recovery plan that, that works, that is aligned with having a climate safe future. Um, it's also, it's also economic economists and financial advisors. I mean, they were the ones who put forward huge reports in the first couple of months saying that green recovery measures aren't just better for people. They're not just better for the planet. They're actually, they make better financial sense in Canada. We know that like for every $10 for every um, 10 million spent, we'll create three times as many jobs in clean energy as we will. If that's invested into the, into fossil fuels, like there is no reason on any level, why we should not be massively, massively investing in, in, into a green and just recovery. And it's irresponsible to be to the kinds of questions and comments that pundits are putting forward and politicians are putting forward are just, are just irresponsible. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm just curious because, and I, I didn't actually include this in the questions that we sort of talked about. So if you don't have an answer, no, no worries. The throne speech is not a budget. Right. So there's there, there's a world in which the throne speech is, is one way and there's still room to push afterwards. Right. Like the throne speech is sort of mapping out what they sort of expect. But then there's that's not that does not lead you directly to policy. There's there's a gap there. Right. Um, yeah, there is a gap there in terms of concrete measures. Right. So kind of the, the, the way the next couple of months will be, we'll have a throne speech on the 23rd. There'll be several days in which. It'll be debated in the House so that opposition parties can push for their own specific priorities. There will be a vote on it, most likely, but they promise that there will be a vote on it. Um, we're expecting a, like a fall economic statement at some point. And then maybe, I mean, all of this is really, <laughs> yeah. nothing, nothing's written stone. We're in unprecedented times, but we're expecting a budget maybe early next year with another potentially another confidence vote. And all of this is happening in, in, in the context of a minority government where, where parties are always ready for elections. Right. Um, but the speech from the throne, while not like tied to specific budget, they won't say we're investing. X money. They probably won't say $5 billion in, in right. energy efficiency, for example. Um, but they do, I mean, it is where they set their priorities, where they set their agenda, and then it's voted on by the House. Mm. So it is, it is a really incredible, really important opportunity. Um, if, we, if we don't get what we want in it, we, still, we continue to push even harder than the last six months. Right. Right. Um, but for the government, they can't just say, you know, we're not gonna include it now, but we'll include it later. Frankly, they've been saying that for five years. Right. They're out of time to, keep pushing off the ambitious things they promised in the last election. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if we can, the, the other thing from that earlier part you mentioned that I wanted to sort of throw out there was the, what's interesting about the, the concept that, you know, you, that we need, that we can't have a green recovery because it's not, you know, of, of, of the time is, is that what we're seeing, especially as you mentioned, is that financial sense, you're getting these messages out, especially from, from BP this week about the fact that we're looking at this, this, this reality where you know British Petroleum, a oil company, is basically saying we've already hit peak oil, and if you already hit peak oil, the oil that's going to be used after that words is not going to be Alberta oil. I mean, it's not Canadian oil is 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 expensive. It is you know 
it's difficult to extract. Like that's not where we're going to be going. And so an investment, like I, we've been on this, this, I feel like it's a broken record a little bit, but like the amount of which the Canadian government and, and the Alberta government especially has become so, uh, they've, they've got, they've got, they've, they've come so far betting on this bet mm-hmm. that, that like we're in danger quite substantially from this, not from, from this transition, uh, like, because we've refused to understand that this is moving, moving the other direction. And so like to right now to double down, I think would be that it's almost the last, the last nail in the coffin a little bit for, for, for our opportunity to be a leader in the green technology space and instead sort of doubling down in the, in, in this, in the, in the old, oil space which again even a even the one of the largest oil companies in the world has said is is over yeah you packed a lot into that yeah into that paragraph <laughs> no exactly that, that, that comment from bp was was really great because it's it is something that we know that peak oil um we're at the end of peak oil we know we have to be to ensure a livable planet but for <laughs> bp to say that we're past peak oil, that oil production is going to go down by 80%. Like that's, that's huge. And this comes on the heel of like Total, uh, one of the other largest energy oil and gas companies, leaving, leaving Canada, not totally yet, but um, there are rumors that that will happen shortly too. The world is turning away from oil and gas for sure. Um, and so we, we have a choice. Either we start a managed decline now, we should have started, you know, years ago, decades ago, but we started the managed decline now, or the chaotic mess that will come from waiting for the entire economy to just leave behind Canadian oil, means it will be incredibly hard on families in Alberta, in Newfoundland, where people depend on that industry. There's a, it's, it's just way more dangerous and irresponsible towards those families and those communities to not take really seriously these super important messages that we're getting from oil and gas players, but also the financial community writ large, who are also saying, you know, we, can't, we won't keep investing in this sector anymore, and especially not in Canada. Yeah, yeah. So you, you touched on this a little bit before, uh, but it, maybe we can sort of come back and, and hammer home a little bit more, which is what you sort of see as the response actually necessary. Like, what is a throne speech that could come out and and say that they're t- taking this call from civil society seriously. Like, what's the throne speech that's going to get a celebration from the Fridays for Future crowd rather than a, you know, a disruption? Um, yeah, okay. So I think there's two parts to that question as well. Um, there's what we know we need to see to ensure a livable planet in a country that takes care of all sectors of society. Um, and then there's what we can realistically expect to see. Like we would love to see um, the throne speech say, we are going to start that managed decline. We're going to phase out fossil fuels. We know we need to see it, but we know also political parties don't have the courage to say anything like that. Unfortunately, not yet. We still need to mount pressure to make that the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went through like some of the more specific climate ones. Like we want to see concrete, um, concrete mention of the, of the legislation that they will be introducing shortly in the fall. One of the issues is that um, the government is really good at saying the right words, really good at saying, we, both, we take very seriously the climate catastrophe while still supporting oil and gas. They manage 
they're going to try the shape of throne speech that assuages everyone's concerns. And on a really face level, they, they might succeed. So we have to be really good at reading between the lines, at seeing if there's any concrete action or whether it's all just kind of like empty rhetoric. And it's really like they will regard, they will throw bones to civil society's requests. There'll be money there for things like energy efficiency and renewables. But this can't be, this can't be like a small incremental, which, which this government likes to do, a small increment, but we need transformative change. So we, yeah, that level needs to be indicated, not token acknowledgements. Over the last six months, across all levels of civil society, we've, had, we've done a really great job of laying out the things we need to see, whether that be um, you know, immigration status for all, that's a very clear thing, whether that be um, accessible childcare for all, that's a really clear thing that folks in the labor community have been asking for. Um, it is, it is a balance because it is, you know, it's a, it's a 10, 15 minute speech. It's, it's not a 50 page document, but, but, but there are concrete things, especially legislative commitments. Um, and so the ones that we are specifically watching for, in addition to that kind of climate accountability legislation, carbon budgets, just transition legislation, um, we're also going to be looking for introduction of, um, a commitment to reform the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, uh, which would include strong protections for vulnerable populations and indigenous and marginalized communities from toxic chemicals and pollution. That's another thing um, that was, in, was initially a commitment, needs to be reiterated to let us know that it is still a priority for government. Of course, around plastics, uh, we know that COVID has like increased levels of plastics. So, and we, government has a longstanding commitment and pretends to be a global leader on reducing plastic pollution. So we need some commitments there. Um, and then, um, then the, for one of our red lines, of course, is no further support to oil and gas. That's, that's our clear, like, if there's any mention of nods to oil and gas sector. And unfortunately, you know, realistically, there probably will be because there is so much pressure coming from the oil and gas sector despite what we just said about they're just they're really in panic mode because of the things we just said and their panic mode is them both trying to position themselves as climate heroes and the transition hinges on them being involved um and at the same time put forward the narrative that it's irresponsible to transition away from oil and gas um and and there's there's incredible amounts of effort coming from the oil and gas industry and the, the provinces that frankly represent them um and other, other status quo proponents like big banks and players like that. Um, that's why we've seen, that's why we've seen the comments in the last week. We, the government is showing us that they're not able to stand up to those pressures when we need them to. Yeah. So yeah. And man, it's, it's funny. It's a 15 minute speech. I, in my head, it was at least a long, a little bit longer than that. <laughs> like I figured it was like, you know, give us at least, you know, some amount of time, but I guess, it is what it is. Um, well, maybe, maybe this year's will be a bit longer. The yeah, last year when we just got one in December, I think it was around 50 minutes. Okay, yeah. I, I, it makes sense. You know, that's I, I, unlikely you're going to get 50 minutes of someone with someone talking. So I totally understand. It just, in my head, it was sort of like, yeah, this is, like, you know, built up a little bit bigger. And then to be realizing that you have to somehow get this all into 15 minutes makes you think like, okay, all right, well, here we go. Which, which I guess then also in some ways 
you know, really does highlight the importance of the messaging they're leaving out beforehand, right? Like, I, it, it, I feel like they're sort of, you know, you can sort of, once you start paying attention to these kind of things, you can start feeling what the government is basically, you know, leak, like leaking or just letting people know about, you know, to the point where you get this sort of, where it doesn't come as a surprise, right? They're like, oh, okay, you're going to get this, you get this, you're probably going to get that, you know, and that's sort of what has made the last little bit so disheartening. Yes. Yeah. I mean, these aren't, these aren't, I mean, there's, there's some probably internal sparring happening because those, those, those leaks, I mean, those are all about setting expectations. Those are purposeful, but we're hearing leaks from some parts of government that say, you know, this is not going to be what you originally thought it was going to be. And then leaks from other other parts of government saying, wait, this is still a commitment. So Hmm. that also shows us the level of disagreement that there currently is in cabinet and probably in the liberal caucus as well, Um, which is interesting and which, which should, you know, encourage us regardless of what happens in speech from throne to keep pressure up because that a divided caucus and cabinet is, is fertile grounds to push for more ambitious action on all, on all from across all sectors. Yeah. So, so let's get into that. How can folks and get involved in making that push both now, but obviously, you know, it's, it's, it is now is like the crunch time. There's only a few days left. Um, but also for the longer haul, um, how can people get involved in sort of this fight? I think one thing is the importance given, given what we kind of just said about it being a minority government. Um, so everyone's, MP really matters. And they're always election ready, which means they always want to know what their constituents are thinking, which means you have more power as a constituent than you usually do. So definitely, definitely reaching out to your MP, even if you think it won't make a difference, even if your MP won't publicly say anything, they do go to their caucus meetings. And we are seeing the prime minister acknowledge that he has to do a better job of talking to his whole caucus because of past accusations that he hasn't, that hasn't been a strong quality of his. So, so more than ever, your MP is important. Um, but we're also seeing, so that, that at the federal level, at the provincial level, like our, our provinces are one of our biggest obstacles to for sure climate action in this country. So if you live in any of the five, six provinces that are blocking climate action, we need we need to shift some of that focus from the federal government to the provincial governments because they're the reasons that it's very hard for the government. I don't, I'm not trying to be apologetic for the federal government, but we do have a really specific context here where a lot of the jurisdiction lies with the provinces and they are continuously bringing the federal government to court over the decisions. Next week, while we have the speech from the throne, we also have at the Supreme Court the, the, the case about carbon pricing the country because three provinces have brought the feds to court for that. Um, so really, at the same time, pressure on the provincial governments. Um, and then there's just so many. There's so many calls to action. There's so many ways to get involved. You can check out Just Recovery for kind of the list of those 500 organizations that signed up to the Just Recovery principles because there's, there's a lot there that's happening. Yeah. Um, and I think important comparisons to make when you're talking to your decision makers is to look at what like the, the other jurisdictions, the leaders are doing. So the EU has been doing a lot when it comes to green recovery. They have um, what is now something like almost five hundred billion dollars of euros for for green recovery, and that's in addition to what like individual countries are doing as well. 
And then in the U.S., Democrats have put forward a $2 trillion spending plan, which if you like did the economy size comparison is about $270 billion Canadian dollars. That's the size that would, that would make it comparative. Um, so those are useful examples. And kind of the framing, like, is the government hoping Trump wins? Because otherwise we would have an ambitious policy going forwards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and the chances, there's always a chance where you, had, you can't have these four years to get ahead of the United States and it just completely squirreled them away. And, and the idea that you might get, you know, passed by Joe Biden on the left is a bit of a, uh, a bit of a sad spot for, for Trudeau, I think. You know, there's like, if you are getting passed by Joe Biden, you are not doing your job as, as a left-leaning government. But yeah, so, so the last question I sort of had was more open-ended, but is there anything else you like, think is important to note? Uh, any upcoming actions? Or really just like, you have the floor, take it away. Um, so as I was saying before, there's a lot of calls to action happening. So there's so many ways to get involved with various organizations. On the 25th, I definitely look to see what the not going back folks are up to with their action, day of action across, across the country. You can get involved. That's September 25th. Um, the groups that signed up for the Just Recovery, they'll be doing some analysis around, around what the throne speech says. But the, you know, the, the, the throne speech wasn't the end of this, these campaigns. The throne speech is a huge milestone. If the government doesn't live up to its expectations, this might be, this could potentially be their last chance to, to be bold, to put forward a real, get, to get their policies done, basically. They were voted in a year ago. They haven't, they haven't um, had a chance, and fair, they haven't had a chance, there's been a pandemic, to, to implement most of their commitments. This might be their last chance. We might be going to an election. I don't think it will be this fall, but could be next spring. Um, are they going to squander this last opportunity or are they going to take advantage and, and live up to the commitments that folks across the country are calling for? Yeah. Thank you so much. Julia Levin from Environmental Defense, the Climate Energy Program Manager. We'll, we'll have you back again when we find out what's happened uh, and we can dissect it together. Uh, thanks. thanks. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure.